when we first met in New York at the BMI, right. when I was still doing my radio show, Murray Stage and Screen, yeah. and you said, oh boy, your show is quite famous over here. Yes, 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 yes. absolutely. Years, yeah, you know? Stage and Screen, um, And at the time, we did a little piece with the boys who were at Avenue Q. Oh, yes. Um, but, I mean, that wasn't the only show that that was born in, in that writing workshop that I, I presume you still do occasionally? Oh, very much so. Uh, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, mm. even before I was a member of that workshop, when Lehman Engel started it in the late 60s, I guess the earliest uh, writer who was a student in that workshop who wrote a show that saw the light of day was Judd Walden, who wrote Raisin, the musical, oh, based gosh, on yeah. Raisin in the Sun. Yeah, It was extremely well thought of. Uh, my group uh, was extraordinary when you think about it. Um, I, there I was, uh, I just uh, working on my PhD, and I was sitting with Alan Menken, who had just graduated from NYU, and Ed Kleban, oh, who yeah. was still working at Columbia Records, and Carol Hall, and Lehman Engel, our great mentor, the dean of Broadway uh, conductors, and also a wonderful uh, composer. Was, was teaching us, sharing with us the lore and everything he could tell us about the nature of musical theater and giving us assignments. And uh, Carol, I remember, wrote Best Little Whorehouse. And then one day, Ed came in and said uh, he had gotten this job with Michael Bennett yeah. to write this show about a chorus line, and he was writing it with somebody named Marvin Hamlish, who we'd never heard of. And uh, we said, why, Ed? Your music is so wonderful. He said, no, 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 he, Michael Bennett has picked this man. And, and, um, and he said to Marvin, and Marvin told me this too, he said, I can't take this job unless you allow me to play these songs for my mates in the workshop because I so value mm -hmm. them. Not anything that they say, but they function as an audience, and I can t every audience will be an audience. Mm -hmm. And he would come in and he would play us these songs. We were the first people to hear them. And, and, you know, one of the things, one of the arcane things that I can share about that was that Michael Bennett had done these interviews with nameless, faceless choristers. And it was his feeling that it's the choristers who are the setting in the ring around the jewel who's the star. Mm. But that if the setting doesn't present the star properly, the star doesn't land. His initial idea was to elevate the nature of the chorus line so that at the end of each show they would go into the audience and bring an ordinary woman upstage, they would bring her down a high kicking chorus line and she would be a star because of how they presented her. Yeah. Which is why the song was written as one singular sensation. It would have been her. And of course, as they, that show evolved, they realized that's that the singular great. sensation was every member of the chorus, that's great, and that's why yeah. they didn't need that woman. I remember in that Monday I came to the workshop, uh, there was one number in particular that, that came up, and you gave, gave the composer a note yeah. and asked what the audience, as you mentioned, thought, and it completely turned the number around, uh, the uh, note you gave. Right. And the response from everybody in the audience was, "That's what will make it work." That's exactly right. You know, so I mean, exciting to be there. So on that much day. of so much of musical theatre is fixing. The art of writing is really the art of rewriting, mm -hmm. and and, and uh, that's a very very important thing to learn. 
about, that's why we hear all the time, oh, the show's in trouble out of town. Thank God the show's in trouble out of town, because then that lowers the expectations. And when the show comes into town, you've worked on it, you've gotten it better, the audience begins to come to pews, they say, well, I hear they're working on it. Well, that's not so bad, is it? And by the end of it, you know, it's miracle on 44th Street, they fix the show. Um, As opposed to the sort of show that has a spectacular reputation. Oh my God, it's in Boston, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then you bring it to New York and everybody sits there with their, arm folded, their arms folded and they say, oh, show me. <laughs> so so um, lowered expectations and, and understanding that uh, no matter what you write is always think of it as your first draft and listen to the audience. Uh, 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 it's, it's really in, in the, the, these fine adjustments. Mm. Uh, I'll never forget the very first time uh, uh, Marx and Lopez played Every, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Nobody laughed in the workshop. And I knew it was funny. Uh, and we talked about it. And uh, we all talked about what is it? What can be done with this song so that, um, so that the audience will instantaneously know at the beginning that they have permission to laugh, that it's mm-hmm. comedy. And the guys brought it in next week as a rewrite. And all they had done was they added a few notes do 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 do. Somehow, that beat of time enabled the audience to take a breath and say, "Oh, this is hilarious." Yes, and, amazing. Uh, and uh, That's amazing. you know, over the years, I've seen that over and over and over again. Those adjustments that make the difference between between greatness and not greatness in musical theater. Uh, I, you've said yourself to me that you were influenced by just about everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, just serious composer. And yeah. as soon as I heard nine. Um, that opening wordless, you know, symphony at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, the women's, thought, o- the women's you know, overture. Yeah, this is this is a composer. You know, yeah, this is well. this counterpoint is <laughs> is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but you've had your first. Sh- I mean, how come you that therefore that you happened upon musical theatre? I mean, you could have gone any direction. Oh, with a, music. That's a very easy question to answer. Uh, I uh, at at university uh, during the era that I was at university uh, to uh, be considered a serious composer. Uh, after studying all of the history of music and musicology, uh, it was the influence of the early 20th century atonalists and, and serialists, uh, and, and further to that, oh, you know, Zanakis and Stockhausen. And in order to be a serious composer in the academy, you had to be writing new music, period. Those were your, that's what your teachers were writing. And they were inventing, they were inventing electronic music as well. So, um, and... I had no problem with that at all. In fact, my, my senior year dissertation at Yale was a cello concerto. It was a serial concerto. I, I wrote it because I, because I knew no one would ever play it, so I called for the Gurulita Orchestra, 115 <laughs> piano. I want four flutes, three piccolos. It was, it was like that. And I wrote it as a concerto grosso for a solo cellist plus three uh, uh, subsidiary solo cellist plus three little divisions in the song. And... Um, and it was it was it was sort of based on tone rows, and it was you know what, Yo Yo Ma eventually premiered that oh, with the Norwalk Symphony, and I loved hearing it. But I really didn't know what my path was going to be because I had always loved musical theater. I had always written it while I was at Yale. I was writing musical theater and incidental music to Brett plays like Galileo Galilei, and my only choice was to go to Juilliard or go to the Academy and literally study with Elliot Carter and, and, and write that, which w- would not have been my first choice at the time. 
And then a miracle happened. I won a fellowship that the, the Paul Mellon had created this fellowship that sends two students from Yale uh, to uh, Clare College, Cambridge, for two years. Mm. And you know, Cambridge, you know, that's the place where they, where you know, communists who escaped would go and sort of uh, chill out for a couple of years. Is that where you, you know, picked up all your wonderful English influences? Well, no, my dad's English. My my dad's from Blackfriars Road, London, oh, no, and the whole family is here. Yeah, that. no, yeah, I I I have my grandfather's hawker's license to sell his wares at Covent Garden in 1912. I keep it on my desk, and 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 I love my English family, yeah. and and then of course between keeping in touch with them and the influence of my dad, and then being educated here. I, I'm probably a, a mid-Atlantic personality, yeah. and certainly mid-Atlantic in terms of my identity and in terms of my musical identity. And then, my dad had his business in Montreal, and we used to go there every summer when I was a kid, and all, all I ever heard was French and Edith Piaf and, and Maurice Chevalier, and so part of me thought I was a French kid, which is why I think probably things like Folie Bergère and Mélodie de Paris, that's probably where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, um, no, I, th- I think, uh, I think to, to put it, not to put too fine a point on it, but to understand why it is that all of my influence are so, uh, influences are so varied, it, it is historic and generational. I am a member of the first generation born into a world in which the LP, the long-playing 33 and 3rd RPM mm. record, was invented. From that moment, virtually every piece of music that ever was written could suddenly be available to anybody at any time. You would. I, my mother gave me Bruno Walter's Beethoven Ninth Symphonies when he was when I was eight years old. I just I played them until I could sing them. But I also listened to Count Basie, mm-hmm. and I also listened to Shaboom Shaboom and Doo Wop and rock and roll and Elvis Presley and folk music and Peter Paul and Mary and every great glorious musical from Fiorello to <laughs> My Fair Lady to that 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 that, that was out there. You're telling me plus, the story of my life yeah, as well. <laughs> plus world music, Miriam McCabe, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 plus all those movies by Satyajit Ray and Federico Fellini. So we were the first generation that saw that there was an equality of musics, an equality of excellence in music that surpassed any snobbish or highfalutin notion that one music was better than the other. We were the first generation to understand that Paul McCartney was just as serious as serious music, just in a different way and for its audience and for what it did. So I I grew up imbued with, with, you know, with, with, with Purcell and Bax and Elgar and and Walton and and Hindemith and Bartok and 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 Handel and 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 Sibelius and you know we go on and on and on and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin sure. and Louis Armstrong and Bill Big Spiderbeck and the Hot Five and the Hot Seven and the Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra from 1938. I became a jazz expert yes. and I loved the modern jazz quartet so much. I, I bought a set of vibes. I learned how to play vibes because yeah. I wanted to play like Mel Jackson, <laughs> and I played club dates on the weekends. <laughs> So, you know, when all of that is in your head at the same time, it means that you, 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 you speak a musical vernacular of, of, it's like speaking 17 foreign languages, fluently. Mm. And all of that becomes very useful when you are telling stories mm. in music. Now, you've had a few 
your your fair share of bad timing and <laughs> well, yes. bad luck with with musicals. I mean, uh-huh. um, Kaja Fall, which you didn't you write a version before the? Oh yeah, I, I wrote I wrote the version. I, they, uh, I was working with Tune on uh, on actually Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine. I had done the incidental music to that, which that was a show that he really did a beautiful job with. And we were working on Nine, and uh, he was tearing his hair out because he was working with Mike Nichols and Jay Preston Allen, who had written *The Prime of Miss Jean Brody* and his screenplay to *Cabaret*, and uh, um, Alan Carr, the impresario, and they wanted a they wanted a show based on *La Cage Folle*. And uh, I said to Tune, "Give me a chance. I'll write you six songs on spec." And he said, "Oh, that was a great idea." And when the, I got the script, they had moved it to New Orleans. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I wrote six songs mm. in a show called The Queen of Basin Street. I, I, yeah. I, named the, I named the club that they owned in uh, The Queen of Basin Street. I named uh, the, uh, the, the show The Queen of Basin Street. I wrote an opening number called The Queen of Basin Street. Of course, the main character is The Queen of Basin Street. <laughs> and um, only through nothing but business wars having nothing to do with me. I, w- I had never been produced. It was really the gods on Mount Olympus throwing, throwing agents, lawyers, and mm. boulders at each other. Somehow it just didn't work out. But, uh, you know, everything goes into the trunk. And nothing, sure. is, nothing is ever wasted. So I, I don't regard that as bad luck. I regard that as being a chance to work with Nichols and Alan. And Alan ultimately brought me Goya with Placido Domingo and Gloria Estevan and, and you know, a song that Barbara Streisand recorded. So, you know, my mother used to say life is a stepping stone. And I tell that to all of my students, you know. You, you may write something, and it, that may not see the light of day, but it's in your trunk, and it's not mm. going away. Scott Fitzgerald kept, you know, sketchbooks. Mm. Beethoven kept sketchbooks. You may find four years from now that you have an assignment in a musical theater piece, and there's just that tune in your sketchbook that's just the right thing mm. for it. And sometimes you're glad that it took that long, mm. because it finds its way into the right slot. Mm. So, uh, you know. And then there was, of course, the other, the other phantom, your phantom, <laughs> yes, which indeed. I think is a gorgeous score. And of course, the big thing about that mm. was that you found a way of telling us why. That's right. These two people. This well, I, well, I initially, I initially turned, I initially person. turned it down, and I, you know, and I think, I think all credit to Andrew Lloyd Webber, and all credit to me. Why? Because at the time that Jeffrey Holder called me up and Arthur Copen and said, come over, I'd like to talk to you about a, this m- movie, this book by Gaston Leroux, and I think it should be a musical, I immediately said, no, it's ridiculous. And he said, why? I said, it's a horror movie. I said, what are we going to do next? Mothra meets Godzilla, the musical? Because <laughs> it was a horror movie. movie. <laughs> Don't forget, at that time, the, uh, an idea for a musical was a George Bernard Shaw play. Mm. It was... You know, Fiddler on the Roof, it was the short stories, books of short stories, right? Fiddler on the Roof was a book of short stories by Shalom Alechem, uh, Tales of the South Pacific, a book of short stories. Uh, but the idea that it would be a horror movie. And uh, Jeffrey said, Well, look, would you please just have a good think about it and come back? And when I came back to Jeffrey, I said, You know, this is the age where the mad sister was kept in the attic. If this, instead of himself throwing himself on the Seine, as that movie where Claude Rains gets hit in the face with acid, if he's just born misshapen and he lives in a crypt underneath, on a lagoon underneath the Paris Opera, and this 
sounds of the glorious opera masterpieces sung by beautiful sopranos waft down through the crypt and they're like mother's milk to him. Mm. All of the disfigurement that he has on the outside is counterbalanced by the beauty of music that's on the inside. And now we have Quasimodo, we have the elephant man, and there's something universal about a character for whom, despite his outward imperfections inside, he's better. And isn't that a sort of a beautiful and general thing we mm. all often feel about ourselves mm. and about those we love? Mm. And suddenly we had a story, and Arthur and I put together who his father was, who his mother was, and it became a, it became a genuine, old-fashioned American musical. And, and I think that's what it is. Uh, and uh, we loved writing it. It's done, done well by you. We, yeah. we, we loved writing it. I loved writing the music and the lyrics, and I loved the character. Uh, and I loved making it a French piece, and I loved making it quasi-operatic, uh, but I also loved making it a musical theater piece. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, what ha these things happen all the time. I mean, how many Cinderella's are there? How many Romeo and Juliet's mm. are there? And the timing was such, and again, I mean, show business is two words, and I urge everybody interested in it, in becoming involved in it, or entering it, to remember that. It's show and business. Yeah. Sometimes the business works out that it's something that you're doing, just the timing is wrong, it's not viable. Uh, I said, Arthur, you know what? I don't think this show is going to happen. You know, uh, there's lots of music here. I'm sure I'll find use for it. I'll write a French piece one day. And you take the story, and Arthur took the story, and it became a very successful um, two-part miniseries on television with Charles Dance. People fell in love with it, and soon after that, a terrific producer from Texas came and said, look here, I'd like, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to do this show. And I thought, right, okay. And that's sort of... I, I love that number, Home, yeah. yes. in it. Yes. That's the number. Before we get to Titanic, sure. uh, Maury, um, what were your feelings about the movie of, of Nine? Yeah, what were your feelings about the movie of Nine? Because, I mean, oh. this is a piece about making yeah. movies, yeah. so, you know. The, the film of Nine, um, it's interesting. And I won't talk about, I'll talk not about its reception, but first of all about its initiation. Mm. Uh, Rob Marshall called me and Harvey Weinstein called and said they loved the, the show and they'd like to do a musical based on it. Um, I take the position that the last thing anybody gifted needs to be saddled with is an over-controlling Broadway author looking over their shoulder. I don't think any gifted person can, can function like that. And I don't think you can insist that a film be a stage show. Hmm. In fact, I worked day and night doing everything I possibly could to make Nine the Musical on stage so stage-worthy, so theatrical, and so dramatic that you couldn't imagine that it could be a film. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, when I first had my meeting with Rob, and he said, you know, this is, these are my thoughts, I said, Rob, before you tell me your thoughts, I think you should make believe I'm dead. And he's had this look, startled look on his I said, no, no, I said, most musicals are written by dead guys. Cole Porter's dead, George Kirkman's dead. <laughs> I said, you, 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 have to, you, have to, you have to make a film, and I'm not a filmmaker, and all I can tell you is I support you, I admire you, I will cut anything you'd like me to cut, I'll write anything new that you ask me to write. Because... This is your baby. Fellini gave me his movie and said, I'm giving you this. I have to give you my show and say, you take it from here. And from then on in, you know, uh, I thought they'll never call me until they open. But Rob called me two weeks later and said, look here, come on downtown. We have to talk about something. And he said, we've got five ballads in a row. And 
would you consider giving Louisa Contini, instead of singing Be On Your Own, uh, would you consider her uh, doing a striptease? And uh, I said, sure. If that's, if that's what you need. I think that's interesting because it's a film and a film needs an action. Yeah. Because on stage there's just a pin light going down and then afterwards they, they exit. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, you know, that what's really interesting about that is that what she's probably saying to him is take it all. It was right there at that moment. She's probably saying to him take it all. Yeah. And, and, and how better to say, you want to, okay, you want Carla? You want a sexy girl? I can do that. I can take my clothes off. Well, that, you know, and something rather raw about that. Mm. I said, and Rob, I said, probably by the end of that number, she'll say, and you know how you will have known that you took it all because there'd be nothing left of me. And I got to the same point I got to in the Broadway song, and neither of them eclipses the other. It was just the shape. And so that's how the, that's how the film worked out. I knew. Uh, that there were always going to be Fellini purists and cineasts who wouldn't cotton to Rob's version of Eight and a Half, mm. just in the same way that some people didn't cotton to uh, Bob Fosse's version of Eight and a Half, uh, or, uh, or uh, Woody Allen's Stardust Memories version of Eight and a Half. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, that's, that's their world. And I also knew that there are people who very much love and are attached to my show, Nine, who wouldn't be happy with missing songs and wouldn't, and, and I understood that. But at the same time, I value and I relish and I am honored and privileged that talented people want to take my work and invest their time and their energy and their imagination and their ideas. I love to go to productions of my things where somebody's come up with a wonderful idea that I wouldn't have thought to present something. Uh, if I may give you an example, mm. um, there's there's a scene in Nine in which uh, the mistress uh, uh, Carla calls Guido up on the phone while Guido is in the hotel room with his wife, and she's and and uh, you know, Tommy Toon said I, I may have invented phone sex. She starts singing Who's Not Wearing Any Clothes and trying to turn him on on the phone. Well, of course, the first time we did it, uh, we were on an abstract white set, and it was Anita Morris, the glorious redhead, and and uh, and. The only question was, would she have an actual phone or would she have a pretend phone in her hand? Uh, when we did it in the, in, in the Antonio Banderas revival, we dropped Jane Krakowski, dressed only in a towel, 40 feet down onto a table with a telephone in her hand. I remember. A, 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 yeah. And she sang it. I've seen that number staged so many ways. One day, about nine years ago, uh, uh, actually an English director uh, by the name of Vernon Mound, who lives in, in, uh, in Scandinavia, Mounted production of Nine in Malmo in, mm. in Sweden and said, Come see it. And I was lucky enough to get there. And it was in Swedish. But there was the scene where Guido was in the hotel room. In this case, Guido and his wife, with their heads upstage and their feet downstage toward the audience, were in bed together reading. And the phone rings. And the voice says, Senior Contini, telephone line five. And Guido says, pronto. And Carla pops up in the bed right between the two of them with the telephone. I was just, and that's fabulous. And she sings the whole song, and Guido is out of his mind. And of course, his wife is just sitting there with her glasses like a nukame, reading the book like nothing's happening. You can do that in a theater, can't you? And so I 
And that is why I don't say, you can't make a change. I don't say, oh, no, no, no. I don't say, no, I won't consider that. Quite the contrary. I, real, I think if you're very, very lucky, it's exactly that attitude that keeps your work alive, keeps your work being timeless, because young, gifted directors like Tom Sutherland is going to have the freedom to put something on its feet in a way that it's never been put on its mm-hmm. feet before, and I just, I just love that. No, and, and no one ever takes away any version yeah. of it you've ever had. You know, the film of Nine did nothing to the show. Yeah. And in fact, we've had productions of the show more often than since the film than, than, than before. Yeah. yeah, it's a great piece. Um, well, you just alluded there to Titanic. Yeah. Um, when I heard, because I saw it on Broadway, and I love it, and, um, and all those wonderful English references in that. My yeah. goodness, from Stanford to Gilbert and Sullivan. All you know, It's all there. Um, but um, when I heard that it was going to be sort of done in a micro version mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, the Southwark Playhouse, I thought, my goodness, how? Isn't that wonderful? See, how? That, that, uh, but th- that, to me, that's the this essence. It's an epic. You know, it's the only reason I have a career is because I, I, I probably have a, a superboy complex. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in writing anything unless it seems absolutely impossible. I mean, let's take a surrealistic Italian movie and turn it into a musical. Oh, sure, great. <laughs> let's take the greatest maritime disaster in history and turn it into a musical. Are you crazy? And then you go, oh, well, you know. Yeah. A- and so if the audience is walking in going, how could you do this? How is it possible to do it? If you pull it off, you and they are, and the actors are so gratified that, that you found a way to do it. I mean, you know, one could easily ask, you know, well, here's a great idea for musical. Why don't we just take a, uh, why don't we take an English linguistic expert who has done a very careful study of minutiae and differences of, of accent between very small sections of a, of of a, uh, of, a, of, a of a UK um, neighborhood and city, and and uh, you know, oh yeah, great idea. But it's My Fair Lady. <laughs> so, uh, w- just because it sounds, it sounds challenging. That's what makes it so interesting. I mean, Rogers and Hammerstein took all these stories from Sales of the South Pacific. They merged three women and made, made her into one woman. Um, and so with respect to Titanic, uh, I knew that it would seem impossible and that and I knew how I wanted to do it and, and I was just burning with passion for it. And, 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 and so that's why we did it that way on Broadway. But then the next question is, well, what about doing Titanic with 20 actors and six people in the, in the orchestra, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that is equally an impossible task. Now, I, I confess, it was not my idea. It was the idea of a number of people who had done the original production on Broadway. The, 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 uh, uh, one of the actors, Don Stevenson, is a wonderful actor and also a wonderful director. And, uh, and uh, Kevin Stites, who was the music director of the original show of Titanic. And it was their dream that they could do the show with fewer actors because you need 36 people and you need 24 people in the band, which is one of the reasons it's probably been just not affordable to do it in the West End. And uh, they came to me and they said, we would like your permission to sort of make the cuts. And, do and I said, yes. Of course, how could I? First of all, I love you, you're my friend, I completely respect your taste, and go ahead. And what they did was uh, that they, they, they boiled the cast down to 20 actors, three of whom pay, play only a single character. Mm-hmm. The captain, the owner, and the architect yep. play only one person. Everybody else plays multiple roles. And 
when you read the script, it reads it reads sort of like a um, uh, like a secret code, uh, because there's M one, M two, M three. That's man one, man two, man three, and. M1 plays, you know, a third-class person, a first-class person, a stoker, etc., a, a, a ship's officer. And, and it's, it's sort of like an intricate uh, web in which they found a way to do it. And then they needed to find a way of reducing the orchestration to very few people, in this case, six people. And Ian Weinberger, who was our, one of our assistants on Death Takes a Holiday, a wonderfully gifted, gifted uh, musician, made some choices that were remarkable. And his choices were simply to say, look, we're going to have a violin, a viola, a cello, and a contrabass, mm. and a keyboard. Now, that's five. Well, with that, uh, I know anybody listening to this who has ever heard the Bartok quartets or the late Beethoven quartets know that, that strings are not necessarily just polite like what you may hear <laughs> in the Palm Garden, but they yes. can really dig in. Yes. And if you have a contrabass in a small house, mm. that's going to make a rumble. That's really going to provide, you know, mm. it, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel the vibrations. And, and obviously, the keyboard can give you all the, all the orchestral piano playing, or it can be a harp, or it can be a harpsichord. No more than that. No, no synthesizer. Mm. But then the sixth instrument, I think that was Ian's genius, because he, he said live percussionist. And now you have, we're hitting a bass drum. We're hitting the timpani. We're hitting cymbals. We're hitting triangles, and that's not some synthesized. That's happening. Yeah. That's happening really right next to your ear. Yeah. And yeah. the combination of that group with the fact that I always write chorically, so that very often there's 18 people singing various things simultaneously, it really comes across like Saint Matthew Passion. You really think you're hearing, <laughs> you think you're hearing a 16 people playing and 30 people singing, and and, and when you have that amount of power in a very small space yeah. it's it's an even better show than it is in a big house yeah because you're right up next to it and because it's so, it's so intimate and but so, it, that's yeah. the point isn't it the intimate. intimacy because we get to know a cross-section of these people well, they, so well, well. They, but they did better than that because because don uh, don played mr clark in the original production and he had a wonderful song with carolyn clark and for whatever reason whatever the pacing of that show was that, sh that song wasn't clicking. And Don said, I think we, it was in the wrong place and I'd like to put that song back in. And we did, and it, it just flew. Mm -hmm. And so now here we have four distinct love couples. We have the Irish girl and Jim Farrell. We have Carolyn and Charles Clark singing the song, it was my favorite song, and now it's back in, in the first act. And then we have the Beans. Uh, for, who are you know, the Midwestern couple and she wants to rub elbows and they sing, she sings I Dance with the First Class Edgar. And, and, then, and then of course Mr. and Mrs. Strauss sing this beautiful song. Uh, and so each class has its own song plus that the Clarks, uh, because she's upper class, he's middle class, that's why they're running away. Because her, her father, who's a lord, is never going to accept this son of a greengrocer. Hmm. Which is, and, and the show's all about class. Well, they went to a theater in upstate New York and they put it on and I went to see it and I was gobsmacked. I just thought, wow, you've really, really done it. Mm -hmm. And now you've enabled us to have a version of the show that I think in many ways is better than the original show because it's more intimate. Yeah. We get to learn and love more people. And now, small theaters all over America, dinner theaters, schools, summer camps, can do the show. And, and we get to see it in London. Well, well, it was when I spoke to Daniel <laughs> Toronto, and I said, yes. look, look here, is it, would this be interesting to you? And she yeah. said, it just sounds perfect for, 
our theater and and you know I, I and, and I, I couldn't be happier. I saw it the other night and I was just thrilled with their production. My favorite moments, the juxtaposition of the proposal and the night was alive. Yeah. Um, is that still there? Oh, of course. <laughs> everything, no, everything is still there. There's Good. nothing missing. There's absolutely Cause, nothing cause missing from the original show. I just think those two... Well, that was, a, that was just a moment. You know, I love creating. Everybody in this show... Communicating not, across distance oh, and that's, all well, that. Well, yeah. Well, not everybody knows that Peter Stone and I... The first thing we decided to do was that every single person in the show would have a name and would be based on a person who was actually on the ship, so that this show would do honor to those people, to those victims and those who survived and those heroes. Uh, and, and then individually, it, it was essential that nobody, that no character be a generic character, but that I really invest everything that I know and everything that I feel into making them individual people. And so the Stoker... I mean, I, I, for me, the Stoker, I wanted him to be, you know, from, I wanted him to be from Leicestershire and Nottingham, uh, be a miner, uh, but be a natural-born poet, right out of D.H. Lawrence, oh. like Mellers, yes. you know? Yes. And, and, and he's in love with this girl, and, and Darlene, and, uh, and uh, he's afraid she's not going to wait for him to come home and propose to her. And he's, he's, the, he's the way into the show, because he, he's right, at the, right on the dock, right at the beginning of the show, and he kisses his girlfriend goodbye and says, you know, I'll see you in two weeks. I'll be back before a fortnight has passed. And everybody, that's why everybody in the audience goes, good God, I know they sank, but they don't. And they're having the time of their lives up until they, you know, mm. and, and, and living out all, all, all of their dreams. And, and so, um, so that's that Stoker. And, and they meet each other right at the top of the show. He says, Barrett Stoker off the Baltic. And the lookout says, Fleet Lookout off the Majestic. And Bride says, Harold Bride, Marconi International Telegraph Company. And, uh, well, of course, I realized back then that the first telegrapher working for Marconi was no different than the first generation of geeks who got onto the internet. What I should do, be <laughs> able to send an email to anybody in the world at any time. It's unprecedented. But so was being able to touch a key and have somebody hear it a thousand miles away yeah. while you're in the middle of the ocean. Mm. And, and so he's deeply in love with his technology. And, you know, and being a techie, obviously he couldn't have had a whole lot of friends when he was growing up. I don't think he was a footballer. <laughs> you know, we, we know this guy. Well, the stoker comes up, sneaks in and says, look here, can you send a telegram for me? And... That's, and I just said to Stone, I said, what if we bring the, what if we bring the Stoker up? And, and he says, I'm afraid my girl's not going to wait. And he proposes to her by telegraph. Oh. And Stone said, oh, good, write that. And so he does. And what happens is, is that we hear both of their stories in the song, and it becomes a double love song. It's the Stoker's yeah. love for his girlfriend, yeah. and it's the telegrapher's love of his technology, and also the fact, the love of his situation in life, in which simply because... He is the communication between one side and another. He finds himself smack in the middle of somebody's romance. And it's a beautiful moment, and it has absolutely, it, it has no precedence in the story of the Titanic. It just, it's, it's what you must do if you're going to write an adaptation. You have to bring everything of yourself to it. You have to create. You can't just rely on what the movie was or what the novel was, because you know, if we're gonna do that, that's just, let's sit on stage and read the book. Well, that convergence there is yeah. very moving. It's and for it me really too. It really is very moving for me too. And I love, I love seeing, and they do it so beautifully oh. at, at the Southwark. They really do. That the, the, the actors, are, actors, 
sing wonderfully and the acting is wonderful and is staged beautifully in, in, in a very flowing way. And as I say, it's when you're only 12 feet from it in that small space, it's so exquisitely intimate, mm. you feel you're there with him. And, and uh, that's why it's so immensely gratifying to have this version of the show that I never dreamed could happen. And in many ways, it's better than the original show. I would point out that the, the, the Broadway Titanic that cost the $10 million or whatever it did with 38 people in the cast and five swings and understudies and 26 people in the orchestra was a miniaturization of the actual Titanic. It was just, <laughs> a, it was small. So to be even smaller is an even more powerful achievement. Yeah. And it's a concentration of human energy and, and music in a, in a, in a space that's, that's virtually uh, explosive, mm. emotionally explosive, musically explosive, and, and, um, and, and there's, there's, there's nothing like theater to yeah. bring you something like that. Are you, what are you working on at the moment, Murray? Um, I mean, you uh, do you write every day, yes. or you Usually sit down day. and... Well, you know, writing is not something you do, it's something you are. Yeah. Uh, you know, music occurs to you. Uh, you know, so many people walk down the street and, you know, they're going doodle doodle they're humming something, and they're humming something that's never been heard before and has never been hummed before, but they don't know it. Uh, or they don't write it down or they don't work on it, but they're natural composers. Uh, I'll never forget, Marlon Brando said the same thing when he was doing an interview and somebody talked about how he was the greatest actor who ever lived. And he said, well, everybody's a great actor. He said, some woman goes to the complaint department of Macy's and puts on a whole show about how this vacuum cleaner doesn't work. She's, it, she's a great actress. It's just that she doesn't know it. But the performance is brilliant. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not saying that everybody is, is Ludwig Beethoven, but what I am saying is, is that um, if music occurs to you in your head and ideas occur to you in your head, you should be writing from where your best ideas are. You know, and, and, and I think that everything that's mattered to me in my life, and I would say that to any writer, is just go with what's in your gut and what's in your instinct. You know, Nadia Boulanger, the great teacher in France of Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, her, you know, the, set, the core of her teaching was never avoid the obvious. What's obvious to you may be non-obvious to the rest of the world. Mm. And so um, it just was obvious to me that... Um, that there's a magnificent story about human dreams and Titanic, about hopes mm. and aspirations. Mm. Uh, when we created Death Takes a Holiday, it was the same. I mean, Peter Stone said, you know, why don't we write Death Takes a Holiday? He said, because we had done this huge Titanic. Let's do something small, a chamber. And I said, well, you know, it's death, death, death. He said, no, 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 it's holiday, holiday, holiday. <laughs> and he's quite right. You know, here's this... What a shame that yeah. with David Oven, uh, yeah. um, um, Julian Oven. Well, thank God it's okay. Yeah, yeah. what a, what a weird thing that it's a, it, you know it can happen. It can happen to anybody, and you know he's a, he's a magnificent actor and a magnificent Isn't singer. His understudy was wonderful, as well. It's the greatest greatest curtain speech ever, ever ever spoken by a, by a director opening night because it was at the last minute. Uh, Kevin had to take over, <laughs> and uh, uh, Doug Hughes was our director, spoke to the audience and said, ladies and gentlemen, Julian's not well, and, you know, this is opening night, and, and um, this will be the first time that his, uh, his understudy will actually be performing the role publicly. And one thing I can absolutely assure you, he will not be over-rehearsed. 
That's great. I've never heard of a displaced larynx before. It happens. But it was something to do with Oh yeah. With his I think neck it, I think his neck got turned. Uh, he Gosh. was t- he was swimming. Wow. Uh, and uh, but as I say, he's a I my first introduction to David was when he was singing The Baron in Grand Hotel on the Dunmar mm. production and he was magnificent of as he still is, I'm yeah. sure. But you know so, that that so, yeah, what, that, what that, but that show was that yeah, that that show was about the value of life, mm. and, you know. Uh so, so right now uh, I'm uh, working on a, a piece that I've, I've invented. I, I, I became pas- passionately interested with Russia in the 90s because I, I still can't imagine, having been brought up during the Cold War, that one day the Soviet Union just dissolved, but it did. And all of a sudden democracy and all of a sudden economic freedom and all of a sudden no more central planning. And for the next 12 or 13 years... The country went to hell in a, in a handbasket, and 13 billionaire oligarchs took over the country. And it was like the Wild West. And you could go into a club at 3 o'clock in the morning and snap your fingers, and there'd be the vodka and the girls. and the, oh, What a fabulous world. What a fa- and I want to tell that story. And so I'm writing a show called Club Moscow. And I think you're, ultimately it'll be more or less environmental, and you'll find yourself sitting in Club Moscow as it's happening around you okay. in Club Moscow. And... One of the things I like about it is that it has the same shape that Peter and I found in Titanic that we felt allowed us to do that show because Titanic is one of the few stories, historical stories, that has a genuine beginning, middle, and an end. And that means that you have a viable dramatic structure for a play. Well, Yeltsin is standing on a tank, the Soviet Union comes down, all of a sudden... The gas, natural gas industry is, and, and Aeroflot is controlled by three people. And then ultimately, Putin comes in and shuts it down. And so we, we have this extraordinary moment. And um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping to actually begin it here in the UK. Because I think that this is exactly the right sort of place that mm. would understand that and appreciate that. Mm. It's very Russian. Mm. And I, I, love being in that, I love being in that world. Mm. So that's one, of, that's one of the things I'm working on. I'm, I'm working on uh, another project that I'm not allowed to talk about, but it is a Preston Sturgis film. Okay. So that means, gonna... that means I'm writing a Cold Porter show that takes place in the early 40s, and I just <laughs> love being able to do that. I'm writing it with Thomas Meehan. And, oh, uh, right. Okay. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's a screwball comedy, a screwball romantic comedy uh, well, in, in the grand tradition, singing and dancing and, you know, Think about if you had Fred, Fred and Ginger, they'd be in it, and uh, it's uh, it's it's rather life giving to do that. Anything I do, I'm very interested in just doing again what's obvious to me. But at the end of the day, I you know, I think I just can't help dipping into tradition, so that I think T. S. Eliot said something about moving moving forward knee deep in tradition, but you know, I I just think that things that I write turn out being viable many years after I've written them, mm. they have a timelessness about them. I would never have thought that 30 years after we did nine we're still doing it mm. or so many years after Phantom or so many years after Titanic. But somehow they keep on feeling of the time. And, and to me that's a, that's a great privilege to be, mm. to be able to present my work well, still I'll, like I'll, that. I'll never forget us sitting in your um, apartment in oh, New yes. York <laughs> and being royally entertained by 
by you at the piano. Yeah. I, I, I forget what, what you were actually playing, but you, you said, I, I've got to, got to show you this. And, uh, uh, and one thing led to another. Yeah. And we had the Maury Eston show right there. Yeah. Well, they actually <laughs> actually did that at, at 54 Below in, uh, in, in New York. It's a cabaret. And we, and yeah. I did an evening. And in fact, we then did an evening with Laura Osnes, who is an extraordinary new actress in, in New York. She did Bonnie and Clyde, and she's now doing Cinderella. And Laura has recorded Laura Osnes, the songs of Maury Eston, and, um, and uh, available at PS Classics. You can okay, order it through. Good, good. <laughs> and uh, she did a beautiful job. She sings the December songs, among other things. And I wrote two new songs for her for the album. But oh, um, that's, that's very sort of very, very exciting for me. Mm. Well, a pleasure. As well, ever. No, thanks. You're the most wonderful man talk in the to business. You. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Thank you.